morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You know, in previous lessons, I talked about the importance of the Mishkan, the sanctuary, and how for Jews it became a central focus of their life as a reminder of the revelation at Sinai. The destruction of the first temple led to exile into Babylonia. The destruction of the second temple in 70 AD led to the Galut, to the disbursement of Jews throughout the world. And of course, eventually led to the disbursement of Jews uh, as a major nation from Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. Though historically it's true that Jews never totally left the land of Israel, and it's true that Jerusalem was never free from a Jewish presence. There were a number of responses to the destruction of the temples, the development of a unique form of Judaism in Babylonia that would be transported back to Eretz Yisrael with the destruction of the temple and became known as Rabbinic Judaism and, of course, becomes the um, ancestor of what Jews today practice. Lots of different historical responses, Sabbateanism, all kinds of things. And one such response was to struggle for continuity and survival in the diaspora while simultaneously maintaining hope for Geulah, for an eventual return to the homeland for the rebuilding of the temple and the restoration of the glory of the past. Now, that's not to be confused with Zionism. What I want to speak with you about this morning is the time in which those anticipated events would occur. And that time in Jewish theological talk is commonly known as Yomot HaMashiach, the Messianic Age. Certainly Christians are familiar with the notion of the Messiah. And Christians, you my listeners in the main, have a sense of um, how the notion, the concept, the theological construct of the Messiah is the underpinning of all Christianity. So this morning, I want to share with you some biblical references and some thoughts on how we understand the Messianic Age. And I put it in the historical context because it, all of our biblical comments are related to either the coming of the destruction of the temple or the aftermath of the coming of the destruction of the temple. And we should understand that this notion of messianism, this notion within Judaism of geulah, of a return 
to the homeland is not as Zionism uh, successfully claimed with the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948, but it's a theological construct that remains part and parcel of the faith of all believing Jews. And I want to begin this morning with a quote from the book of Samuel. Yes, some of you... uh, are familiar with the fact that Judaism requires a real understanding of Judaism. An understanding of Jewish faith understands the facts of Judaism. And the facts are that we always have to go back to the text. We have to see what the text says. So I'm going to start this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse... 51. And then chapter 23, it just continues. Okay, 2251. Tower of victory to his king. Migdol Yeshuot Malko. Now, I read it in Hebrew because I want you to hear the word, right? Migdol Yeshuot Malko, Vaose Chesed, Lim Siho, Lidavidu Lazaro Adolam. And this translates as Tower of Victory to His King, who deals graciously with His anointed. Mishicho, his anointed, with David and his offspring forevermore. And now the first verse of chapter 23. These are the last words of David. The utterance of David, son of Jesse. Neum David ben Yishai. The utterance of a man set on high, Moshiach Elohei Yaakov, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the favorite of the songs of Israel. Now, I I hope you heard the repetition of that word. These texts are found in two songs expressed by King David. The first, in gratitude to God for having saved him from hands of the enemies. The second considered to be his last words expressed through divine inspiration. In these two verses I've shared with you, David refers to himself as God's anointed. Meshicho and Mashiach. The basis for this title is the fact that kings and high priests in those days in Israel were anointed with oil. You will remember the story of Samuel who anoints Saul which serves as a symbol of their consecration for a new position. King David is considered Meshuach, the anointed one par excellence, and so too the anointed one who will usher in the era described in the texts that I'm going to share with you. And that anointed one who will usher in the era as discussed in Isaiah. And that is referred to in Hebrew as Mashiach, 
and the English is Messiah. And the future days, as understood in Judaism, are often referred to as Yomota Mashiach, the days of the Messiah. So now I'm going to read to you a section that you know well. Yes, Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 12. I'm not going to be able to analyze all of it, but let's start. A shoot shall grow up out of the stump of Yeshai, Jesse. A twig shall sprout from his stock, and the spirit of God shall alight upon it, the spirit of wisdom and insight, a spirit of counsel and valor, a spirit of devotion and reverence for God, and he shall sense the truth by his reverence for God. He shall not judge by what his eyes beholds, nor decide by what his ears perceived. Thus he shall judge the poor with equity and decide with justice for the lowly of the land. He shall strike down a land with the rod of his mouth and slay the wicked with the breath of his lips. Justice shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his waist. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the bird lie down with the kid. The calf, the beast of prey, and the falling fatling together with a little boy to herd them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion, like the ox, shall eat straw. In that day, I've skipped a little, but if you're following me, you see I'm on verse 10. In that day, the stock of Jesse that has remained standing shall become a standard to peoples. Nathan shall seek his counsel, and his abode shall be honored. Vahayaba yom hahu. And on that day, my Lord will apply his hand again to redeeming the other part of his people. He will redeem his people from all throughout the world. And behold, a signal to the nations, and he will hold up a signal to the nations and assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So you hear it, yes? The text speaks of a sprout that will go out of the stump of Jesse. We read before that Jesse is the father of King David. And since David is already deceased by the time that this text is written, David having died around 90 B, 950 BCE, while this text, according to Jewish tradition, was written after 750 BC, so almost 200 years later, it can only be describing a future descendant of Jesse, the son of David. This unnamed person will be endowed with the Spirit of God, of wisdom and insight, of counsel and valor, devotion and reverence for God. He will use these divine blessings in the pursuit of justice and equality. That's what the text says, that this unnamed individual, the sprout of Desi, yes, through his pervasiveness and unique oratory skills, rather than beings of force, he will deter the wicked from performing acts of treachery. The text tells us in Isaiah that he will deter the wicked and nations will seek his counsel and he will gather the Jewish exiles from the four corners of the earth and return them to their homeland. 
begin to see how this theology plays out in so many different ways in your life and my life. Those of you who believe we're waiting for the exiles to be gathered, those who believe that the nation of Israel is the first flowering of this uh, messianic age. In addition, the appearance of this extraordinary individual The prophet foretells the unfolding of extraordinary events. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The leopard lie down with the kid. A babe shall play over a viper's hole. In all of my sacred mount, nothing evil or vile shall be done. For the land shall be filled with devotion to God as the waters cover the sea. So what is our text saying? When the Messiah comes, justice, devotion to God, universal peace and harmony will be the clarion call of the Messiah's presence on earth. Now, Isaiah 2, just the next chapter, or actually the beginning of the book, is understood to be describing the same events as described in chapter 11. The only differentiation might be that the events that I first read to you occur on that day when the Messiah appears, and the events in chapter 2 that I'm going to read to you now occur, as the text says, at the end of days. This is chapter 2 of Isaiah. The word of Isaiah, son of Amos, prophesies concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Listen carefully. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall stand firm above the mountains and tower above the hills, and all the nations shall gaze on it with joy. And many people shall go and say, come, let us go up to the mount of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. This is a prediction. In the days to come, v'hayu ba'acharit ha'yamim. Really, ba'acharit means at the end, following. They've translated as days to come. Let us go up to the mount of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us in his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For instruction shall come forth from Zion, the word of God from Jerusalem. Ki mitzion teitzei Torah, devar adonai me Yerushalayim, part of the Jewish liturgy when the Torah is being carried. Thus he will judge among the nations and arbitrate for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall take up sword against nation. They shall never again know war. That is, my friends, how Jewish tradition describes the Messianic age. Now, according to the text, the mount of the Lord's house, i.e. the temple, will stand firm above the mountains, and the nations shall gaze on it with joy. The nations of the world will want to make pilgrimage to it so that God may instruct us in his ways and we may walk in his paths. In this context, Isaiah promised what has become the better-known prophecies, even on the um, wall of a, you know, 
a concrete wall and a park across the street from the UN, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not take up law sword against nation. They shall never know war. This is one you can guess. People see this as an inspiring expression of universal peace and harmony. While this text has a universal message of peace for humankind, the foundation for it is the God of Israel, the land of Israel, and the temple that heretofore had been the hallmark of God's presence among the people of Israel in particular. In other words, Isaiah is telling us that the Messianic era will be a time in which Jerusalem will be the religious capital of the world, and the God of Israel will be recognized as the God of all humankind. Furthermore, the statement says, Ki mitzion teitze Torah. Ki mitzion, for the instruction shall come forth from Zion. And this may, suggest, this may suggest that the citizens of Zion, one of the names of the city of Jerusalem, and the Jews recently gathered there from the four corners of the earth, will be expected to serve as God's emissaries in teaching God's ways to the nations of the world. Now, let me be honest with you that while these texts from Isaiah are among the better-known descriptions of the Messianic age, there are numerous texts which are more particularistic and view the Jewish people as the sole beneficiaries of the Ad Era. So you can read Isaiah 54, chapter 54, and chapter 6, and Jeremiah 3, which seem to suggest that only we, the Jewish people, will be the beneficiaries. So take a moment and reflect that Isaiah and other sources tell us about the power of a messianic age brought about in some manner or form by the uh, Moshiach, the anointed one. Good. But there is another side, a darker side, of Yemot HaMashiach, in which there will be an increase of insolence. Honor will dwindle. The government will be corrupt. Scholars will gather for immoral purposes. Honest and God-fearing people will be despised, and there will be no respect for the elderly. This is from the Mishnah Tractate Sota, written in 3rd century. In the footsteps of the Messiah, insolence will increase and the cost of living will rise. I'm translating for you. The vine will yield its fruit abundantly and wine will be dear. The government will turn to heresy and there will be no one to offer them reproof. The meeting place of scholars will be used for immorality. Galilee will be destroyed, Gebulun destroyed, and the dwellers of the border cities will go about begging from place to place with no one to beg pity on them. The wisdom of the learned will be denigrated. Those who fear sin will be despised and truth will be lacking. Youth will put old men to shame and the old will stand up in the presence of the youth. The faith uh, the face of the generation will be like that, the face of a dog. A son will have no shame before his father. Upon whom will they rely? Upon our father and who is in heaven. Third century. Yes. One of the great commentators on this, Rabbi Israel Salanter, 
a founder of Hasidism in the 19th century, suggested that the face of the generation refers to its heads or leaders. The behavior of the leaders of the generation will resemble that of dogs. When a dog is walked by its master, it trots ahead and thus appears to be leading. In reality, however, it is the master who chooses the direction in which to go. When the dog comes to a fork in the road, it stops and waits for its master to direct it. In the pre-Messianic era, he writes, the leaders will only appear to be leading the nation. In reality, they will be following the whims of the masses. One should hear that in relationship to um, the um, events in the election of the United States. The leaders will only appear to be leading the nation. In reality, they will be following the whims, whims of the masses. The novelty of this rabbinic perspective is that these events are predicted for a time that they would refer to as the footsteps of the Messiah. In other words, the rabbis who believed in the coming of the Mashiach and the advent of the Messianic age also believed that the period prior to his arrival will be shameless and frightening. Now that certainly fits with how the rabbis saw the events of the second century, third century. Why is it necessary to have this period of chaos and corruption? Why can't God usher in the messianic era without this prior suffering? Well, historically, that's not possible, yes? The Jews are suffering, and they hope that there will be a great uh, end to their suffering. The rabbis are simply foretelling the moral deterioration of the Jews that will be the product of their own free choice. The rabbis are then offering consolation. The Mashiach will come precisely when all seems hopeless. Alternatively, perhaps the wicked have to be punished before the righteous can enjoy the blessings of the messianic age. Or perhaps the rabbis are trying to suggest it is necessary for everyone to some, suffer some hardship and pain before the blessings can be truly appreciated, much as light comes as a stark contrast after a period of extended darkness. I read these three perspectives because historically the Jews have suffered. It's only in their suffering following the destruction of the temple that the notion of the messianic age, which is expressed in Isaiah regarding the destruction of the first temple, teems to take hold. And at the same time, there's this notion that prior to the messianic age, the footsteps of the Messiah, there will be chaos. Well, the chaos already existed. But the rabbis were not always clear about how to understand what was going on. So let me continue for a moment. Having expressed all of this information about the Messiah, there are a number of later commentators who need to respond to what will happen. In Midrash Tanhuma, again, a late Midrash, Rabbi Judah states, if the Jewish people fail to repent, they will not be redeemed. As it says, you shall be saved by repentance and ease from Isaiah 30. 
Rabbi Simeon responds, whether or not the Jews repents, once the fixed end arrives, they will be redeemed immediately. As it says in Isaiah, I, the Lord, shall hasten it at the appointed time. Rabbi Elazar states, if they do not repent of their own accord, God will set up an evil king whose decrees are as unbearable of those of Haman, who will oppress them. They will repent as a result, for it says, my enemy shall come like a stream that the wind of the Lord drives on. Again from Isaiah. And at that moment, the Redeemer shall come to Zion. Well, there you note that the rabbinic views on the timing of the messianic arrival. Rabbi Judas names that redemption of this kind must be earned through good behavior. Only after collective repentance from sins can this error be anticipated. He views redemption as a reward for the fulfillment of God's commandments. Good. Interestingly enough, this view has served as the basis for a large segment of the growing movement in many Jewish communities that seeks an increase, the level of obedience as a vehicle to bring the people closer to the Messianic age. Rabbi Shimeon disagreed. There is a fixed time for Geula, independent of the spiritual and moral condition of the Jews. Apparently, he considered the suffering of Jews in exile as sufficient grounds to warrant redemption. And Rabbi Elazar argued that tshuva is, in fact, a necessary condition for the Messiah to come because God wants to bring an end to our misery, even if we are not worthy. Therefore, if we do not repent on our own initiative, God will set up a king whose decrees will cause us to repent. So the interesting point of all of this is who is ultimately responsible for bringing redemption into the world? Is it in our hands, God's hands, or a combination of both? Listen to that. Who is responsible for bringing redemption to the world? This has been one of the challenging notions within Judaism. The Messiah is always ready to arrive. But how will the Messiah come? Who will bring the Messiah into our world? What a challenge. I wish we had more time to talk about this powerful topic. Because having once understood the meaning of the Messiah and the Messianic Age... The conversation about who brings, who bears the responsibility for bringing the Messiah into the world is, of course, the next real challenge to understand. Jewish faith, the belief in the Messiah that will come. Jewish fact, how does the Messiah come? I leave you with that question. How does the Messiah come? Christianity certainly has one answer. Other traditions, non-Mosaic, have other answers about bringing peace and sanity to the world. We'll have to leave it for another chat. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, this is Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you a good day. Shalom.